out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. That is a nice idea, Jim, but probably not going to happen. This is David Eastall. This is the C80 Six Show once again, bringing the finest in indie pop. I've been um, trucking through some of the interviews I've been doing and decided to put some of them out as kind of specials, standalone. This is one that I did with the author Michael White, who brought a book out titled Pop Kiss, The Life and Afterlife of Sarah Records. This came out on Bloomsbury Books Publishing and um, I do believe there's only a few left so if you haven't bought a copy go out and do it now because otherwise you're going to be disappointed and this could just make your Christmas that much more special anyway this is the interview I know so much quality chat for me Um, and this is the first part well the only part really um, where we were talking about the early years And then we started comparing ages. I know, it's fascinating. You can tell I've been doing this for a long time. I know. I hope you've got notebook, pen, make notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you have been paying attention. Anyway, cut the chat. This is it. This is Michael talking about my age and his age and so much more. Take it away, Michael. I I don't know how old you are. Um, I'm 49 and so I was... A teenager when the whole sort of C86 thing was was happening and and I was lucky enough to discover it when I did it it wasn't easy to find out about this music living in Canada um, but uh, I lived my god uh, about an hour away from Toronto and there were amazing uh, record shops there to buy UK imports and um, and through a mutual uh, or rather through a friend that I was working with at a record store at the time, uh, he introduced me to the C86 album. Uh, he bought it, I think, early in 87. And I was already listening to things like thing, things that were along similar lines, but that were easier to get a hold of in, in Canada. So things like The Smiths and Everything But The Girl and Lloyd Cole. But hearing the C86 album... Uh, just opened up an entirely new world for me. And I feel like up until when I wrote Pop Kiss, which I guess I finished it about four years ago now, um, it was just a constant uh, (laughs) voyage of discovery because there were, as you say, there were so many of these bands. There were seemingly hundreds of them that I'm still discovering to this day. Um, Yes. Yeah. It is quite interesting, yes. Well, I am, too, um, without... <laughs> yes, I'm sort of in my mid-50s, so I was kind of very much part of that kind of... I sort of just happened to be there when John Peel was playing a lot of this kind of indie pop music, and I became obsessed with... I suppose I used to record his shows. I never... interested. Mm-hmm. I never listened to them live. I'd always put my trusty TDK D90 cassette in and record 45 right. or 90 minutes of a show and um yes and and then turn it over the next day and do the next and then have to listen to it several times because all the music was so it was for the when you listen to something completely for, for the first time and it's quite an odd sound sometimes you know it's kind of hard to digest it whereas you know in the charts you were getting bombarded sort of consciously and subconsciously with you know the charts and Tina Turner and Dire Straits and Duran Duran and Sade and stuff like that so when you heard Bogshed or Big Stump or um 
big stunt that is right isn't it yeah and and all those other bands which were a little bit like oh that's a bit odd but I need you know but it took a few times before you started to understand it because he would throw so much at each show which seemed to be there was indie pop but there was also the African stuff with like the four brothers and the Bundy yeah. boys and then early rap stuff as well T. La Rock, Roxy Chante, you know Public Enemy's first album and and sort of death metal as well thrown in and it was like okay my brain has, you know, it's kind of hard to to deal with it all at the time. But then, yeah, you needed to listen to it a few times and then think, right, I quite like that. That's that's going to be my thing. Yeah, it, it was absolutely revelatory for me because there was no precedent in my life for that kind of music. I, I heard the major label equivalent of it. Um, but yeah, of course, I... I I shouldn't actually say major label. In Canada, in North America, the Smiths were on a major label. So to me, they were a major label band, although I realized they very much were not. But hearing the C86 album, uh, in particular, you know, I still remember, which is extraordinary considering that this was, oh my goodness, um, close to 35 years ago, um, being made a cassette of that and walking to the bus stop and hearing Velocity Girl for the first time. It, it, isn't, it isn't an exaggeration to say that it, I felt as though I'd been waiting my entire life, my entire 17 years, to hear music like that. And not having heard the bands that had influenced Primal Scream, uh, you know, not having heard anything of the birds other than their greatest hits and never having heard the band Love or any of those sorts of bands, um, it was an entirely new sound to me. Yes, and, well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It was and, then, and, then, and then, of course, you know, you also have that other aspect, like the Ron Johnson band. So you have Big Flame and Stump and the McKenzies and all that sort of thing. And it didn't appeal to me as much, but it, it did instantly make me aware that there was a completely different world of music going on out there that I previously didn't know anything about. Yes, I know. Well, it's funny because you had those bands that you mentioned at the beginning. The, I suppose they were the league, you know, league one bands, weren't they? You know, like the Smiths, everything mm-hmm. but the girl, Lloyd Cole, and and sort of really, kind of nicely produced and and sort of um, yeah, just kind of kind of classy indie bands with great lyrics and sort of great you know rhythm and and yeah, you know, great chords and stuff like that. Not trousers, yeah. you know, um, but, and, and then you, you had all this kind of stuff underneath it, which was like, oh my God, who, who let them in? But again, it was kind of a curious thing. Cause I, I mean, I just remember the first time, possibly the first time I might be making this up now, but you know, listen to everything. Um, we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and being absolutely like, God, I love that band. I'm going to buy Boston Steve Austin straight away even if I can get a copy because sometimes you would want to hear it you know get a copy and think well how do you do that because frankly it was quite hard and and the interesting thing was there was a moment where John Peel had a show on the world service which was kind of um, an odd one really but he would try and play stuff that he hadn't played on his other shows this was kind of I don't know if it was for the armed forces or people who just lived around the world who wanted to be, yes, listen to John Peel, which I thought was kind of quite optimistic of whoever put it together. And hearing the hit parade to um, see you mm. in Havana and thinking, oh, my God, luckily I had the cassette so I could then rewind, scribble down the name. And I, I don't know how I did it, but I sort of actually had to write to Julian Henry and say, I really like that. Could I get a single? And then he wrote back to say, send me pound twenty-seven, And then I had to get, a, I don't know, either a cheque or postal order from the post yeah. office and send him the money. And then he sent me the single. 
And you yeah. think, Christ, it was quite a palaver. I can see why I, I still reminisce about that story because it wasn't, you know, you didn't just go, great, I'll go and download it or I'll go and buy it and it will come in the post two days later. It was, it was a, you know, but that song, you know, was just absolutely mind-blowing, so I needed to get it. But I know Woolworths and, you know, even the indie shop in, in Norwich wouldn't have got that single. So um, yeah. we, we had to struggle. It wasn't easy. It would have been a lot easier to go in and say, I want... Phil Collins, face value. Do you have a copy? <laughs> it was even more complicated for me living overseas because not only did you have to write off to these people the same as you did, but the, the waiting time for a reply obviously was much longer. And then um, once you did find out how much money you had to send to them to get these records, there was the exchange rate to take into consideration and you had to go and buy an, an international money order and uh, and then wait probably another six weeks for the record to arrive. So from from the moment that you first wrote to, for instance, <laughs> in my case, the first time I wrote to Sarah in 1989, and then actually received the records that I wanted from them, probably close to three months had passed. <laughs> yes, I know. You know, that probably lasted a lot longer than, you know, quite a few people's marriages, actually. Because, <laughs> um, frankly, you know, well, Brittany, at, at least. But, um, yes, I know, it was it was quite tricky in those days. And, you know, even now I sort of have moments where I wake up going, God, that reggae track that John Peel played, you know. Well, I've got a booklet that I scribbled little names on and um, came across it recently and were like, oh, my God, I had to Google away sort of these kind of, yeah, bands and things, and came across a few, few reggae reggae songs that I hadn't heard for thirty five years that were just there on YouTube, and thinking, "Oh my God, that's incredible! It's someone's put it up, you know." And it was one of those ones that someone recorded it while playing the YouTube, literally the vinyl record, but it was still good enough to hear it and make me think, "God, that's amazing!" Absolutely, and it's, and it's it. I never could have fathomed that it would have been technologically possible in my lifetime to be able to retroactively hear all of this music, all of these John Peel broadcasts and the cassette, the compilation cassettes that were given away with fanzines, all of these things that I wasn't able to get a hold of at the time, that I could, that I could just go online and hear all of these things at a click of a mouse. It's been, it's been extraordinary to be able to catch up with everything that way well absolutely which brings us nicely to your book which was i know you just mentioned it's kind of probably four or five years it came out and you probably spent years writing it so look one thing that i noticed doing these interviews with various people i did a couple last year with um some academics who did i don't know a book on fanzines and it did feature a chapter by claire in it it was on the manchester university press it was a hard hardback for only 70 pounds so I'd wait for the paperback to come out but it was a great fanzine and the Claire, the bit with Claire was was stunning but I noticed that 30 years seems to be this kind of passing of time where things had gone from probably being disposed of and put put in the recycling not landfill obviously um and then and then suddenly one day someone wakes up and thinks oh my god that's that's history and heritage we need to put that in a museum for god's sake don't put it in the bin so did you you know did you sort of also feel a similar thing because obviously Sarah Records at the time wasn't given the same sort of, I don't know, kudos and appreciation that it does now, which seems to be, you know, the, the, it was your book and then there was the, even the film and then all the compilations. So did it? Did you also have a feeling of like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. This, this has now become really appreciated. There, 
There were actually two reasons why I decided to write the book, um, one of which relates directly to what you're talking about. So myself, having been a fan of the label since 1989, um, I wanted to write the book for my own personal enlightenment um, because it didn't seem as though anybody else was going to do it. <laughs> um, and there was so much about the label that I didn't, no, because they were so poorly documented at the time that they existed. There, there was coverage to an extent in Melody Maker and NME, which I did buy religiously at the time, but, but not very much. You, you didn't really find out a whole lot about the bands and certainly not a whole lot about the label. Um, and then, of course, as the Internet continued to evolve and social media continued to evolve, it became very obvious to me that there were people all over the world who were in a similar position to me, who either had been fans of Sarah for a long time or who had discovered it very recently, people much younger than you and I, um, who were fascinated by it and wanted to know what happened. They wanted to know more about the bands. They wanted to know how the label came into existence and why it stopped at the time that it did and all of the minutiae of Matt and Claire's day-to-day -day lives. And... Um, and so the short answer is that it was to satisfy my own curiosity and also the curiosity of all of these people that I was becoming aware of on social media who even not even the Internet made it easier to find out about Sarah. There was so little information out there. So I thought if I don't do it, somebody else is going to before too long and I'm never going to be able to forgive myself for missing out on the opportunity. Yes. And had you, because it's quite something, it's, you know, we've all probably done it, haven't we? You know, one night think, I've got this great idea. You're really fired up. You wake up in the morning and think, oh, my God, that was a dreadful idea. I hope nobody was paying attention. And, <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, or, you know, even, and that's probably quite a handy thing, rather than starting something and then sort of saying, no, that's a terrible idea still. I'm just going to forget it. So you actually had the idea and then followed it through, which was quite something, because that's, that's, you know... I mean, I expect 95% of people, 99 probably, have those kind of fantasies and then that goes. But 1% follow something through and say, look, I have actually got the book. Or, so did, yeah, so, and you're also on a, on a publisher, you know, you're not even on a sort of, um, I don't know. I don't one of those kind of crowdfunding things, which is probably quite a relief, isn't it? So did, so yeah, so, okay, so you, you had the idea and then you started doing it. And then how long did it take? Well, it's a it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. I'm, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I um I sat on the idea for at least two years before I actually uh, started writing it. it. It may have actually been closer to three years. I still have a very vivid memory, which is surprising that it's so vivid because I was quite drunk at the time. Um, I was sitting in a bar with a, with a friend of mine here in Vancouver. Her name is Vanessa. And ironically, she now lives in Bristol uh, through various things that happened in her life. But um, we have very similar musical taste. And I remember telling her that I was thinking about writing a book about Sarah. Um, I'd been a music journalist since the early 90s. And I'd begun to think that after almost 20 years of doing this, maybe it's time for you to write a book. But what would that book be about? And Sarah seemed the most obvious thing to me because it was what I personally was most interested in finding out 
more about. But the reason it took two years for me to start writing it, um, I had a very demanding day job. And obviously, I couldn't make a living out of writing a book about Sarah Records. So I had to wait until my personal circumstances allowed enough downtime for me to write the book. Um, and then I switched jobs to something that was much easier. And it actually freed up enough time that I could foresee having time on evenings and weekends to write the book. But then that, that didn't necessarily mean that Matt and Claire would be on board with it. And I, I would never have written the book if it didn't have their blessing, number one, because I would need their participation. I wouldn't find out half of what I need to know without their involvement. But also if they, if I didn't have their blessing, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. Um, because what would be the, the point if the very people that you're writing about aren't in favor of you doing it? Um, so I emailed them one night in 2011 and, uh, and fortunately, they were already familiar with me. Um, number one, in the summer of 1990, I went to visit the UK for the first time. I was 20 years old. And I made a point of going very far out of my way because I was staying with people in, in, in the London area. Um, I went out of my way to go and visit them in Bristol when they were still living in the Upper Belgrave uh, flat. But then fast forward... Um, almost 20 years and I've been writing various liner note projects for reissues that uh, Cherry Red Records have been doing, um, which included the Blue Boy catalog uh, and I think it was 2009. So that put me back on Matt and Claire's radar after almost 20 years. And fortunately for me, they really liked the notes that I did. Um, I also did the notes for the reissue of uh, Harvey Williams's solo albums. So that established with Matt and Claire, they liked my writing and they knew that I would put in the necessary research. And, and I, I think that they approved of the sort of tone and um, historical perspective that I, that I brought to it, if that doesn't sound too pretentious. So um, so luckily for me, uh, I said to them, I, I would like to write a book about Sarah Records, and I'm not going to do it if I don't have your approval. And they responded within a few days and basically said, if you want to do it, then you're welcome to and we'll help out however we can. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, quite, but, that's, yeah, I mean, because luckily you didn't try and get hold of um, do anything on Alan Horn anyway. You know, it would have been tricky. Oh, my God. I, I as, as much of fan of postcard as i am i, I are, his reputation precedes him <laughs> uh, yes I, I never would have set myself so difficult a task as trying to uh uh to write something about him I, I to the best of my knowledge nobody has succeeded in getting him to actually do uh um to to fully participate in a book that one that simon is it simon goddard yes that's right yeah. He's, he did a book didn't he on um Various things, and um, yeah, I know there's a few people. It's interesting. I know this is a bit of a sideline, so I'll, I um, but yes, there's a few people I just can't get hold of. Anybody from the band called the Redskins, and people uh. like, and like Alan Horn. I mean, God, those those. I'm really impressed when people can disappear that much and really were so 
in the scene and on it and sort of selling huge amounts of records. Well, huge, you know, it wasn't face value by Phil Collins, but it was still quite a lot and then managed to disappear quite so brilliantly. I just think that's incredible. But anyway, that's a sideline, isn't yeah. it? For us, us people who, who are kind of still curious what happened, I think it's... so. Going back to the, the book, so was it the case then that you just wanted the story? You, you were just kind of had that phenomenal curiosity. That's exactly what it is, is that I, despite having been a fan of Sarah for almost 20 years, knew almost nothing about what actually went on in the in the day-to-day existence of the label. Um, I, the, the two hours that I spent in Matt and Claire's flat in 1990... Uh, confirmed for me that at the time, number one, they were very poor. Um, I had I had never uh, seen people living in such a, a bare bones existence as that before, um, and it was very. I felt sorry for them actually. It, it it was very endearing, but at the same time, to me, I was completely naive as to the economics of. Uh, of UK indie music at the time that nobody was really making very much money off, off of this sort of thing. So they were essentially living like students, but I was only 20. I had yet to leave home at that time. And, um, and they were living in what seemed to me to be abject poverty. But of course, as the label became more successful, they were able to move out into a larger flat and then eventually they bought a house. So their circumstances did change for the better. Um, so, the shorter answer is yes, it was to satisfy my own curiosity, but I also knew, knew that there were an increasing number of people in the world who wanted to know the same things that I did. Yes. Um, the individual bands as well. I mean, nobody really knew very much about the Sea Urchins. Nobody knew very much about the Orchids. People certainly didn't know anything about the the really short-lived bands on the label, like, for instance, the Poppy Heads, who did the one single and then they were gone. Well, what were they all about? Um, so, so it was a way of trying to answer these questions for myself and for everybody else out there who was interested. And fortunately for me, it turned out that there were enough people out there that were interested that the book has been more successful than anybody thought it was going to be. Yeah, well, it, yeah, absolutely. And it is it's an in-depth. I know that um, Neil Taylor, who did the book a few years ago on the C86 show, um, mm. <laughs> C86 cassette and that scene and he was the one of the three people who compiled that famous 22 track cassette back in the year um, yes I mean he did a, a crowdfunding book and that again was kind of fascinating because actually it was it was kind of lots of stuff in there that I also had no idea about either actually because it was you know I wasn't in London and I didn't I, you know I was obsessed but I wasn't literally living in the scene and sort of um, yeah sort of experiencing it firsthand so again yeah I mean it's interesting I you know it taps into that whole thing about kind of um content you know because in this day and age there is everything's out there and is Mm -hmm. available but then there is the you know there is kind of in-depth content which gives something a reason to kind of not just exist because everything can exist, but it just gives something. It's got to gives it a depth, I suppose, and then sort of a following because it's kind of word of mouth. You must have found found with this book. You know, you probably I don't know how many of you got printed or the Bloomsbury got printed, but they probably thought, oh well, best of luck. And then you just realise that word of mouth kept sort of kept the sales going because eventually people will find it on the internet and think, oh my god, this is quite a good book, and it's kind of 
writes about all those kind of in-depth things about a music scene that hasn't been touched. Because I suppose with indie pop, the, the, you know, what I've sort of discovered was that... Um, <laughs> which is big of me but you know I sort of put it down from the years of sort of 83 to 87 which is the kind of years of the Smiths but then it was the stuff that sort of then kind of comes out of it and when there's ever a program which I do enjoy those kind of documentaries on indie pop it can be a little bit sort of like oh god they've got the same characters so you get to that point where you, you kind of wish they would talk to another band or another label or just say right we've we've done the Anna McGee story and we've done this and that can we just kind of interview someone else and I kind of find that in today's kind of music world and press is that you know I'm just so uninterested in the family dynamics of two brothers who were once in a kind of Brit pop band who I'd never yeah. quite see or why they were that popular but they but you know we still have to sort of hear about their sort of family squabbles and the fact that they're probably not going to spend Christmas with each other but you just think there are more interesting artists out there even you know who were back then, who were still happening today, who would be much more interested or interesting to hear about. So the people, you know, getting the stories is always kind of interesting. And you must have also learnt an awful lot about the British welfare state in the 80s. I did, actually. I, I know, for instance, that Sarah likely never would have come into existence if not for the enterprise allowance scheme i know the enterprise allowance scheme yes because there was the only there was kind of unemployment and then there was this other thing that you could if you managed to have a thousand pound in your bank which was always like oh that's interesting how did you (laughs) um you then got onto this kind of enterprise allowance and then you became a self-employed whatever you know they didn't really care i mean people put down the most random things but there were people who did musicians and labels and that kind of gave you that it was almost like having a student grant that you didn't have to pay back and it was for a lot of people you could then concentrate 24 7 on that thing yeah exactly i i know that the enterprise allowance scheme is mentioned at least twice in the book i I know that matt signed on to it and that was what allowed him to do sarah and there was at least one other label or possibly even another band that was mentioned that essentially financed its existence through the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. So, yeah, there, I, I learned a lot of things about, I, I suppose you could say, the sort of social conditions that allowed indie pop to happen on the scale that it did, that, yes. allowed, that allowed these bands to happen, that allowed these labels to happen, and also the sort of again, social conditions that all of these very young people who were in these bands and who were running these labels uh, existed in. Absolutely. And also, yeah. sort of going back to the book, you must have also had that moment in the middle of the night at probably 3am of sort of <laughs> worrying that it was, you're going to have to do justice to this kind of musical scene. And the people who yeah. liked this music were probably a bit nerdy and they were going to pick up any little errors. And, um, and <clears throat> you know, so you did you have to sort of, I just wondered if you had to do lots of kind of rewriting and adding bits and thinking, Christ, I've got to add that now because if I don't, someone's going to go, look, matey, you've completely missed this point and you should have mentioned it. Mm, it, it was absolutely nerve-wracking. Um, first and foremost, because it was the first book that I'd ever written. Um, and when you haven't written one before, I think almost invariably you underestimate how much work is actually involved. Uh, particularly if, as was the case with Pop Kiss, you're going to be interviewing around 100 people over, over a period of about three years. Um, and also trawling through or at least trying to locate 
um, years and years of the UK music press, back issues of Melody Maker and NME and Sounds, uh, most of which are not easily available in Canada, although I was very lucky that the Vancouver Library System has uh, the entirety of uh, Melody Maker on microfilm in its archives, so that was a huge help. But um, I, the fanzines, I never, with a few exceptions, I never owned any of them because I had no way of acquiring them then. So it was a matter of finding people online who were able to send me uh, scans of their fanzines or in some cases actually uh, loaning them to me uh, in bulk. People showed incredible generosity uh, helping me acquire the materials that would help me find out what I needed to know. And also to your earlier point, just trying to locate some of these people who were never famous and, um, have essentially <laughs> fallen off the face of the earth. How do you find a member of the sweetest ache? How do you, how do you find a member of the poppy heads? Um, it's not that easily done. So it ended up being, far more time consuming. I, I think from, from the time that I first contacted Matt and Claire to get their approval to when the final draft of the book was approved, it was about three and a half years, um, which was, I would say, a year and a half longer than I was expecting it to take. Yes. Because I, yeah. I was very impressed. You even put the Farmers Boys from Norwich, who, where, which is where I'm from. Um, they, they even get a mention in the book. So you did, you did sort of really, yes, get deep down and dirty with this whole sort of project, you know. Because and also fanzines is the one thing that is infuriating in the sense that you kind of wish someone would just put them all online now and have them just beautifully displayed, but they're not. And you know, it's and and they go for really ridiculous money now on eBay, so um, it's not even worth it. So, did you? I mean, was there anybody that you thought, God, I really wished I could have got them, and they said no. Said no. I'm going to have to try to cast my mind back here. Um, because there was the there was that fancy in Hungary. I know it's not really. Past. Oh, Kevin Pierce. Yes. Yeah, uh, Kevin Pierce did talk to me. Um, he used to be fairly active on Facebook, but it's actually, I think it's been a couple of years now since I've seen him on there. Um, and I was quite in awe of him because I think he's a, he's a brilliant writer. And, and Hungry Beat, his, uh, his fanzine, I think really was the first fanzine that, it, that devoted itself in any significant way to this music that we will refer to as indie pop for the sake of convenience. Yes. Um, and I learned about a lot of these bands through him. Um, so I was, I was quite intimidated when I approached him for the first time, but he was, he was incredibly generous. Um, and I did manage to get a hold of, um, uh, PDFs of a few of his fanzines. There was hungry beat and he did one issue that was under the name, the same sky, uh, which was an amazing read. And of course he did that book in the early nineties called something beginning with O that sort of connected the dots of a lot of things that weren't indie pop per se, but that were of a lot of interest to the people who did form these bands. So people like Vic Goddard and, and uh, Kevin Rowland, for instance. Um, but, but in terms of people saying no or not being able to track down people, um, I don't recall anybody saying no to me with one exception, but then I got very lucky. Um, Bobby Ratton from 
from the field mice, of course, uh, initially said no, very politely, uh, which my understanding is what he always does when he's asked to talk about the field mice, because he's, he's just not interested in talking about it anymore. To him, that's the past, and it belongs in the past, and he's focused on the music that he's making now, because unlike so many other people on Sarah, he's still very actively making new music. Um, and then what happened was I struck up a sort of online friendship with his partner, Beth, uh, Beth Arzi, who was in the band Aberdeen, who were also on Sarah. Um, they've, they've been a couple now for many years. And uh, so when I went to London on a research trip for the book, uh, she and I met up. I interviewed her. We had drinks. And she reported back to to Bobby that I was, number one, a nice person. And number two, she thought that I was taking the correct approach uh, to writing this book. And then on top of that, uh, someone in, in Brooklyn found out that I was writing the book and then interviewed me for his blog while the book was still in process. And Bobby read that and that confirmed for him again, he, he felt that I was taking the right, uh, approach that it wasn't going to be too fawning, that it was going to be somewhat irreverent and somewhat critical where I felt that it was necessary to be critical. And then he agreed to do an interview. And that ended up being probably the biggest stroke of luck that I had with the book that and getting the deal with Bloomsbury. Yes. Uh, because the general consensus seems to be that the chapter about the field mice, uh, is the best part of the book, which I actually agree with. Um, and he ended up being an incredible interview as well. Extremely generous, uh, very candid. He remembered a lot of interesting little facts. Um, he was funny as well. So, um, so really it, it, it was despite the, just the, the sort of um, nerve-wracking process of writing a book itself, um, it did go incredibly smoothly in terms of um, people being very generous with their time and people generally being very good interviews. Yes, God, that was very good. Yes, no, that's always a, it's always exciting, isn't it, when someone says yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, in, in a way, when you get rejected, you just wish they had just ignored you, not just wrote back and said, no, I'm not interested. Because yeah. just, you just have to go and put on the Smith's record and feel sad. Anyway, so look, yes, just lastly then, Bloomsbury, that must have been an amazing stroke of luck. Because, cause, you know, nowadays everyone struggles to get somebody to do these things. So they, they, you do crowdfunding and that all becomes desperate and a bit awkward and a bit weird. I know Neil Taylor had a bit of an interesting time because... Um, he promised quite a lot on his funding, and I think quite a few people never got the goods and the, you know, they, he was going to put on concerts and stuff. He was very ambitious, and uh, okay. yes, there was a, there was a lot of kind of, and also he disappeared. So for a, quite a period of time, everyone was wondering where Neil was, and it was like, oh dear. And then the book came out, which was which was fantastic. Oh, are you yeah. still there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you still hear me? Yeah, I can. Yeah. No, I was wondering what happened to Neil as well. <laughs> um, I don't know, no. I mean, I did I did an interview with him when he was doing the crowdfunding, and then I managed to track him down when he had done the book and did an interview with him, and he's gone again. I don't know. He did say he was going to do another book, but, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of one of those. Did you ever get the book he did? 
No, I didn't. Um, and that this this isn't relevant to to your interview, but um, so it it's quite an expensive book after the exchange rate because the Canadian dollar is worth nothing against the British pound. So it's uh, quite expensive to acquire. Um, you may or may not know this <clears throat> that just before um, Popkiss came out, I got really ill and uh, and didn't work for a year. Uh, I'm totally fine now, but uh, I ended up having this really crazy, really expensive uh, illness that basically uh, took all of my savings away from me. So I've had to be super careful with money uh, ever since then. And, um, and yeah, I've just not been able to justify the expense of getting the book just yet because it, it's, it's, it's quite a costly one here. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, if I track one down... I'll try and find it. But actually, I think they're quite difficult to get because I don't know how many he printed. But yes, it's quite an amazing read. I mean, because he was kind of just so there on the scene. So the detail is quite, you know, fantastically nerdy. So, yes, just tell us how did um, you manage to sell this to Bloomsbury? Because they probably would have looked a bit blank and said, you sure you don't want to do a Phil Collins face value book? (laughs) It was the most extraordinary uh, bit of luck. Uh, getting Bloomsbury to take this book on. And it basically came down to two people. Um, so one of the first interviews that I did for the book was with Rick Mank, who was in the band The Springfields, uh, which was the first American band that was on Sarah. Um, and Rick and I have a bit of a history because I'd interview, he, he actually was one of the first musicians that I ever interviewed back in the mid nineties when he was in Velvet Crush. Um, so we had a great conversation, probably in late 2011 or early 2012. And when I first started writing the book, I didn't have a deal for it yet, but I just felt confident that somebody would take it on. But I just assumed that it would be a small specialty press somewhere, either in the UK or possibly even in Japan. Um, And certainly it it was never about the money because it's not as if this this book was ever going to sell in in Harry Potter type numbers. So um, so he asked me if I had a deal for the book yet. And I said I didn't. And he said, you should contact this guy named David Barker. Now, you're probably familiar with and probably most of your listeners are familiar with a series of books called 33 and a third. Yes. Yeah, these these pocket sized books um, that have come out. There's over a hundred of them now, and each book is about a particular album. So Rick wrote one of the books for the series. He wrote about the notorious Bird Brothers by the Birds, and uh, David Barker is the creator of the Thirty Three and a Third series. Now, to make the story a little bit more complicated, when David created the Thirty Three and a Third series. Um, David is British, but he was living in New York at the time and working for a publisher called Continuum, uh, which is, which is the publisher that put out the 33 and a third books. Continuum was eventually bought by Bloomsbury. And then David went on to work for Bloomsbury and became quite a senior person, uh, in the company. And then he returned to London to work out of their offices there. As it turns out, David is an indie kid from back in the day, and he's a huge fan of Sarah Records. So Rick Mank said to me, David might be interested in this. You should contact him. And 
I sent David an unsolicited Facebook message and I told him who I was and what I was doing and would this be of interest to him. And um, at the time that I contacted him, he actually had nothing to do with Bloomsbury's music division anymore, but he was senior enough and he single-handedly cheerleaded so hard for Bloomsbury taking on Popkiss that they just, they said, okay. Just to get rid of him. <laughs> Possibly. I, I mean, to be, to be clear, the contract that I got for this book is exactly what you would expect uh, to be offered to a first-time unproven author writing about an extremely esoteric subject. I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't really make any money off of, off of Popkiss once you factor in the number of hours that I invested in writing it. But I think it became far more successful than any of us were expecting. Um, the first edition of 2,000 copies sold out in just over a month. But that was very much a matter of every Sarah obsessive in the world immediately rushing out and, um, and buying a copy. The second edition, which was also 2,000 copies, is only just close to selling out now, uh, almost three years later. So it's taken much longer for that to sell, but for 4,000 copies of a music book, a physical music book in 2019, um, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Yes. So I'm rather happy about it. Well, that's, it is absolutely fantastic. And actually, you know, it's, it's also one of those books that is going to get read rather than just kind of, oh God, I've just bought it. And then you keep looking at it thinking, oh, yeah, it does look really immaculate still. Perhaps I'll put it on eBay. But, you know, I'd imagine it has been read and sort of perused. I mean, there is one line in it, which I think just last which I think is kind of funny, really funny. But did this make you laugh, the one on the field mice, when it referred to his cock, when he said Michael was Bobby's Andrew, Andrew, Andrew Ridgely? Yeah, that was a great line. That was from Ian Catt, uh, their producer. And, and obviously I didn't know anything about uh, what Bobby or Michael were like as personalities or what the dynamic of their friendship was. But um, I, I think we've all been made aware uh, over the years, if we are fans of his music, that, that Bobby is um, uh, quite a shy and retiring individual. <laughs> And um, and so the idea that there could be a George Michael and Andrew Ridgely dynamic between the two of them, albeit on a much smaller scale, uh, with much less money and much less fame. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a fantastic line. God, that's a good one. I mean, that just, you know, you, you just have to sit down and just chuckle, don't you, really? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's a class. Well, look, this has been great. Well, thank you, Michael, for um, giving me the time. And you're down to basically the last few copies that's true my understanding is that um there are just about a hundred copy new copies left in the world and uh and once the second edition has sold out that will be it in terms of physical copies uh you'll still be able to get an ebook if you like but otherwise it's going to end up become one one of those uh one of those collector's items not unlike, not unlike a sarah record Absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Great. I've now got an echo on this, haven't I? <laughs> oh, no. No, I think it, it's, it's almost it's there. Almost... 
Apart from there's an echo. Yeah, okay, then look, I won't keep rabbiting on because this will, this will sort of then destroy the whole part, the last bit. But look, yes, thank you ever so much. And just lastly, okay, just um, have you got anything you're working on since this um, publication? Because obviously this must have sort of taken it out of you and you went, oh my God, never again. Yeah. And then woke up and thought, oh, I don't know, perhaps I should. Yeah, I mean, this will not, I, I don't think, be of interest to you or to the listeners of this show. Um, there is, there is an idea for a book that, um, that I have for my second book, which, um, a literary agent in New York has actually shown keen interest in. And now it's up to me to finish a pitch package for it. But, um, it's basically to do with, uh, the illness that I went through around the time that, uh, that pop kiss came out because it was a very rare, uh, unusual thing that I had, um, which most people don't, uh, recover from. Uh, it doesn't kill you, but I should have been permanently disabled. It was a neurological disorder and I made a full recovery from it and that almost never happens. So it's going to be about that experience and also about the role that music that I think that music played, um, in my physical and emotional recovery uh, from that experience. And then it's going to take a wider look about the role that music plays, uh, in general in, uh, in people's, uh, physical and emotional therapy when they're dealing with, uh, serious illness. Wow. That's kind of, that's quite a heavy one, isn't it? it <laughs> yes, that is um, quite something. It's always kind of interesting what you turn to when you're sort of in those moments of life, because there's always something, you know, however ill you are, you can just want yeah. to play something. So it's quite interesting because I had a, a bit of a moment in 2016 of, you know, like, oh God, and I had to have a major operation. And I just remember sort of, because I couldn't move for a few days because of the pain and just sitting there mm -hmm. with the morphine and, and sort of like listen to things like from, I don't know, Ian Dury and, um, and Motorhead. Oh. I just remember Motorhead sort of, you know, just kind of, I don't know, it was just a lot of pain. I needed something loud and slightly aggressive. <laughs> That is very interesting. I would have thought the opposite, that you need something to sort of calm you. Yeah, I don't know. I must have, perhaps I was listening to those sort of things just beforehand. I don't know. Was, um, but it is kind of, I, just, I don't know, I just had it on my Spotify downloaded playlist. And um, yeah, just kind of was, yeah, I can remember, you know, just being, you know, I suppose also, even if you're not able to get out, you're still laying there thinking, God, one day I'm just going to be able to sit up in a bed. But today that's not going to happen because I'm in too much pain. And even yeah. even with the reclining bed thing or the whatever it is that you have, it just is still too difficult. So you have to leave it a few days. And then one day you, you sit up and you think, I'm sitting up. It's a great <laughs> day. I can sit up. One day I'll go to the toilet. Um, with that. <laughs> yes, you know, it's kind of, it's weird, isn't it, those experiences? You know, you just forget what it's like just to not be able to literally sit up straight in a bed because the pain on, on the, around the stomach was just too horrendous, even with morphine. So, yeah, I just remember listening to Motorhead, though. So, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So the healing power of Sarah Records, it must have helped. Oddly, the music that I ended up getting very into uh, around this time uh, and in the aftermath of my recovery was all for lack of a for lack of a better term was african-american music so i was i got extremely into 
a lot of old soul, which I'd, which I'd always listened to, but it had been more sort of peripheral. Um, but it became sort of the main event. Uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of disco, a lot of, um, a lot of jazz, a lot of African music. It all became about the rhythm, uh, big focus on the rhythm section. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with, I just needed music that was uncomplicatedly joyful and that compelled me to start moving because uh, I was very physically disabled by what I had and I was barely able to walk from one room of the apartment to the, to the other. Um, and part of my recovery process was just trying to walk as much as possible. Um, so I basically spent the entire summer of my recovery just walking all over the city for hours and hours every day. So, um, so that was what I, that was what I started listening to. Um, yeah, it was very different. Not Motorhead. Not Motorhead, but yeah, it's a bit funky. That was good. Yeah. Actually, there was some, um, I've just been watching this BBC4 music documentary on Betty Davis, this kind of singer who was quite big yeah. in the 70s and then completely disappeared. She's, she's another one, you see. Everyone wonders, what is Betty Davis doing? But she was, she was married to Miles and, um, you know, it's yeah. quite an interesting story. But yes, you've got to keep it funky. <laughs> but look michael thank you ever so much this has been amazing and i'll um yes i'll put it out soon because obviously the book's going to sell in the last few weeks isn't it before christmas well that would certainly be nice um i mean the the sales have really slowed to a crawl in the past year i think most of the people uh who really wanted it have got it at this point but it does seem like people are only just now finding out about it but i think that's more to do with the fact that People are just continuing to discover Sarah for the first time, and then they find out that this book exists. And yeah, so it's it's continuing to sell in little drips. But um, but if it were to sell out over the holiday season, obviously that would be amazing. It would be good. But it's interesting because I did an interview with um, oh God the bassist Mark um, on last week. Is it for the field mice and. Um, oh. And I was just, you know, as I was doing the interview, and um, I was, I, I just sort of had a quick look at the Spotify and the monthly playlist, uh, you know, plays of Spotty of the Field Mice is kind of extraordinary. I think it, from memory, it was like one hundred and seventy thousand plays a month, and I was thinking, wow. wow. Obviously, for the artists, they go great. We don't get a penny of that, but it means that people are interested and will, you know, theoretically and potentially buy the book because they're the kind of curiosity. It's not like you look and think, oh yes, twenty people a month listening to the field mice. It was it was a sizable number on Spotify, and I thought, well, that's quite an indication of how popular that band are. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm sure that not to keep you too much longer, but I I'm sure that it is a constant source of amazement to Matt that he still essentially has. I'm not sure if it's a full-time job, but a part-time job, just tending to all of the administrative tasks around Sarah. And this is, my God, how many decades since the label stopped? Yes, well, that's absolutely, because I did an interview, I've done an interview with um, both of them, and um, and they still have to sort, sort out all that kind of publishing and kind of admin stuff, and you think, oh, God, yeah, you didn't just come, you can't just completely walk away, can you? No. 
No. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Anyway, look, yes. Well, thank you ever so much. I'm so pleased we got this together because I know I, in, I contacted you a few years ago or I don't know, and then it sort of dropped off the radar and I thought, God, I suddenly saw something that, you know, that it was all sending out. I thought, oh, God, I must try and get an interview before before it's all gone. Okay. This yeah, I appreciate great. it. Uh, please, uh, please do let me know when uh, it's been posted online and I'll... Uh, I'll promote it on the Facebook page. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well, look, Michael, have a fantastic day. You too. Have a great night. Okay, take care there. Bye. Bye-bye.